The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 3, 1-8. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. If I, haven't had a, if I haven't had a pleasure to meet you before, my name is Paul Lim. I've been serving as scholar-in-residence here in Old Hickory since 2016. And my other work is at Vanderbilt as a, a professor in the history of Christianity. So between Vanderbilt and Christ Press, I find that delight of uh, I'm walking with different people and learning about different stories as to how God is working in their lives. So it's a great delight to be here with you on this Memorial Day Sunday. If you're able and willing, let's pray one more time, because as you heard this passage, this is not an easy one to unpack. I don't know about you, but okay, let's do it. Um, gracious God, we thank you for your mercies that are new every day. As we talk about this beautiful institution of marriage and the relationship between husbands and wives, almost immediately it may bring up and conjure up images of hurt or damage or pain and suffering. May you heal us, may you sanctify us, and may you bring us to Christ so that in him we will find true meaning and healing and direction of all of our life journeys. In your name we pray, amen. amen. Right, well, a marriage, as we know well, is something that we hear about a lot or participating in and have experienced in the past. So as something that is present reality or past reality or future ambition and aspirations, a marriage is the first uh, recorded and divinely sanctioned human relationship, as you may recall from Genesis chapter 2. God sees the husband and the wife, and God, in fact, said it's not good for the man to be alone. So he brought uh, the woman to him, and God uh, desired and designed that they be brought together in that institution of marriage. And we know that very well. But before I go on any further, can I identify the pink elephant in the room? And I feel utterly hypocritical about preaching on marriage uh, because I'm not a perfect husband, and I think there are some of you sitting here as perfect wife and husband, but I'm not one, so you can just imagine the reaction when I found out that I was preaching on this passage. I said to myself, man, this is going to be a doozy. So here we are. Um, 
So before we get to today's text, it will be important for us to do a quick retrospective as we have been going through the sermon series on 1 Peter. I'd like for us to be reminded of the overarching kind of exhortation Peter offers to the believers he was addressing in the first century. So these were Christians. Uh, Many of them had been uh, um, in the Jewish community, and they're kind of uh, discovering uh, what it means to follow God and love God and to be loved by God in Jesus Christ. And there's a sense of evident excitement, but also there's an evident sense of apprehension because not many around them were completely on board with what it meant for this group of people called followers of Christ to be slightly different or substantially different from where everyone else was. So the text that, and also the other thing that I want to share with you before we get to this uh, exposition of today's text is that the Bible is living and active. That it's not some kind of fable that was written many years ago and has no relevance, but it is historically true and is something that people have been dedicating their lives and devoting their life journeys to preserving and saving. So if you want to see the slide that's going to be shown in just a second, it, so this is the fir- earliest MS, is a manuscript of First Peter. It goes back to about 3rd century, it's found in Egypt, and that language is Greek. And what, what it says is that this is uh, what it tells, about, tells us about this Bible that we have, is that it is something that has been preserved, and it has been something that is passed on to the next generation. So the language and the expressions that are there in the Bible, this is a, a Crosby Schoen manuscript. Um, that means that this Bible scripture that we hold in our hands or on our phones, that is something that has been given by God to humankind for the purpose of our deeper communion with God and for the purpose of communication from God and for us. And so the other reason why I wanted to show that kind of a slide here is to remind us that the Bible is something that is tangible, something that is real, something that is literal and historical. It's not, again, something that has been just concocted by a group of people who are just deranged or kind of demonized. So, so for today's text, so the, the kind of main text that kind of sets a framework of today's message about relationship between husbands and wives is found right here in 1 Peter chapter 2, which is on our next slide. So I know it's my apology. I should have made that font a lot bigger, but I was seeing it in from the computer screen. It was a lot closer. But this is what it says. Uh, Peter urges his friends by saying, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So what I want to share with you is this, these two verses become the foundational uh, for the rest of the exhortations that he gives with regard to one another in terms of societal relationships or between uh, you know, servants and masters in their sort of unequal relationship, disproportionate relationality between those who are working for and those whose work are received by those who uh, kind of hire them. And in today's text, it is between husbands and wives. One important thing to be reminded of is all human relationships are ruined and are being redeemed. Let me say that again. All human relationships as a result of the fall are ruined and are also being redeemed. Both these things are really important for us to be reminded of. There is a sense of already and not yet. Because of God's gracious intrusion upon our life in Jesus Christ, 
we are already participating and witnessing the glimpse of what God's kingdom looks like. But there is also the sense that it is not yet completed so that though we may desire to see it more clearly, but we may not be able to see it all that clearly. And one of the institutions that has been affected by it in terms of human relationships is marriage. And we can be testaments to that, all of us in our marriages uh, here or joining us online. So this is what it says, okay? So because all relationships are ruined and are being redeemed, this is his reminder. He says, you've got two a potential pro- trouble in two ways. He says, look, internally, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. He says, there's something internal that is waging war against you. Your desires, and your desires may, that may not cohere with God's desires and design, wage war against them, right? You've got to fight the battle. Internally, but also there is an external battle because they are accusing you of wrongdoing. There are people outside who are accusing Christians of wrongdoing in terms of their practices of, you know, the Lord's Supper, which they called it as, you know, basically uh, cannibalism because you're eating someone's flesh and drinking somebody's blood. And they are also accusing Christians of um, the kind of incest because they're calling everyone brothers and sisters. And they're also saying that these are untrustworthy, unpatriotic people, really not fit to be citizens of the great Roman Empire because they call Jesus and not Caesar Lord. So they were being accused of wrongdoing, and, and Peter reminds them, hey, you got actually potential trouble in both these ways. you got to fight that. And then he says, as a way of reminding them, he says, there are two things I want you to really remember. One is your identity. Notice what it says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. And we've been going through this series, and, and, and all of us have been reminding all of you, all the preachers have been reminding all of you, that a core message of Peter is to remind the early Christians that their ultimate home was not this world. Their ultimate home was not in the Roman Empire, as great as it may have been. Our ultimate home is not the United States of America, as great a country as it has been for a lot of us. So, remember these two, these two things. Your identity is... You're foreigners and exiles. And also your destiny is that the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord. The Lord will visit this world and make all wrongs right. As a result, today's instruction on the beauty, truth, and goodness of the covenant of marriage needs to be seen against this backdrop of Peter's instruction for the exile community regarding this altogether crucial institution of human co-flourishing called marriage. So when people uh, read today's text, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 8, they tend to have two very, I mean, among others, two kind of opposite reactions. Some group kind of approach with total rejection. Like, look at this language of adornment and, you know, calling your, you know, husband's lords and, and, you know, this is just totally to be rejected. I'm not calling my husband lord. That's ludicrous. And others say, well, I'm going to, you know, it's going to be a total reception. I want my wife to call me my Lord, and and this is, I'm going to reject, you know, receive it with literal truth, like, because I want that to be real. And there's also another way of looking at it rather than just total rejection or total reception. It is to really see this in light of the event of Jesus Christ and to really uh, gain an understanding that is fundamentally different either by way of rejection totally or either or by way of total reception. So today's three points are as follows. We're going to look at these uh, three points in that order. Marriage 
as covenant. That's the first point. And second point is marriage as sacrament. And thirdly, married to Christ. So marriage as a covenant, marriage as sacrament, and married to Christ. All right, so let's look at the first point, marriage as covenant, shall we? So what is a covenant, we might ask? A covenant is, you know, neighborhoods might draw up their neighborhood covenant, right? HOA, Homeowners Association, might, might have a neighbor's covenant. That means they make a solemn promise and enter into a contractual relationship that says, I'm going to be serious to keep my end of the bargain. And they, it's a longer document that outlines very specifically, almost ad infinitum and ad nauseum, as to like what you are supposed to do if you're a member of this community. Another way of looking at it is like this. Let's say I'm borrowing a large sum of money. A large sum of money, let's say, I don't know, uh, half a million dollars uh, for my own purposes. And because the banks or the individuals from whom I like to borrow money say, you know what, I want to make sure that you're serious about paying me back. That means we draw up a contract and make a covenant, right? So if you think back in this time period of First Peter, or even before that to the period of Abraham, there were these kind of uh, uh, ceremonies and rituals that were carried out in order to solidify or solemnize uh, covenants that people are making. And are you ready for this? So if I'm back in uh, the book of Genesis, Abraham uh, was uh, uh, making a covenant. God was making a covenant with Abraham. And this is part and parcel of in that ancient Near Eastern um, cultural practice. If I'm making a covenant with you, let's say I'm borrowing money from you, and so I'm the, the party who needs to pay back. So what I'm going to bring with me is not money because I don't have that, but I'm going to bring an animal. And an animal will come, and then uh, I will kill the animal, split the animal's body in half, vertically, and then I'm going to walk on over the body of the carcass, I mean, of the animal, to really signify something really, really important. By walking over this dead animal, I know it sounds really gruesome, but I want you to hear. Because by walking over the dead animal, what I am saying is, may the same fate that happened to this animal happen to me if I don't pay you back. Did you hear that? So that, that, that's how you solemnize a promise that you're about to make. That I'm borrowing a large sum of money, and if I don't pay you back, I'm going to be like this dead carcass. Right? I mean, this dead animal. This will happen to me. So all of that to say that marriage is often seen as a covenant. That means that marriage is a very serious entering upon some kind of promise, right? I mean, any, any wedding ceremonies I've been to, a part of officiating or attending or being in it myself, there's always this kind of covenantal aspect. You make a promise before the officiating minister or officiating person that you are actually standing before God and before these human witnesses, that you're entering into this most seriously, most advisedly, and without any haste and all of that language, right? You remember that? Your marriage vow, some of you who are married. Married, and others of you are aspiring to be married. And, and so think about marriage as covenant, right? It's a very serious uh, promise that people are making. It is also at the same time, um, in this text, both wives and husbands are addressed in that order, right? You see that, right? Wives are addressed and then husbands. That was actually rather uncommon within the context of the Roman Empire. Women in this context in Rome were often seen as inferior to men, even to the point of being seen as commodity in the pursuit of significance for the father of the family, pater familias. 
And so it is within this context we need to see how Peter is addressing this group of wives in the first century Roman context as to how they should best conduct themselves in the presence of the Lord so as to really pursue God and pursue holiness. And I don't know about you, but as we were singing earlier today, I mean, just a few minutes ago, I was really kind of, you know, uh, um, uh, just really stunned by the language of God is your goodness is running after me. I really noticed the phrase of running after me because when I think about the phrase running after me, that doesn't connote something positive. Usually like, you know, somebody like, because I'm in trouble, I'm running away and somebody's running after me. But then it says that your goodness, God's goodness is running after me. I want you to think about this, friends. You, I, I don't know a lot of you, but I know some of you, and, and the, the, some of you that I do know are wonderful people, but think of your running away from something, and as you're running away, somebody's coming after you, and that someone who's coming after is coming after you with his goodness. Our Heavenly Father is coming after us with his goodness, running after me with his goodness. This is that God who enters into the covenant with us, God blessed the first marriage and says, I am with you. I'm in this marriage together with you. And so we need to be reminded of the fact that marriage is a covenant. There does seem to be a disproportionately higher verbiage directed at the wives rather than husbands. I can understand, sympathize uh, with some people who chafe at this possible example of first century patriarchy, as I have heard many a time. Yet we have to ask this question. Since God knows all things and is committed to working through all human circumstances to God's glory and to the true transformation of the human selves and communities, what might God be aiming at here in this text? What, put it very bluntly, what is God's intention of addressing the wives and the husbands? What is God trying to communicate? What is God trying to accomplish when he's talking about submitting to pagan husbands? Or, you know, don't focus on the externals, but focus on the inner beauty. And follow the example of Sarah as she called Abram her Lord. What on earth is Peter saying? And more importantly, what on earth is God saying through Peter? Because Scripture, as you know, is perfectly divine and perfectly human. That God worked through human authors to speak infallibly and inerrantly God's saving message for us. Peter understood that marriage was a covenant. In a powerful and poignant way, marriage was to remind spouses and lovers involved therein that it was not just divinely initiated and ordained. It was also to remind the marriage partners that they cannot do it alone. Let me say that again. The whole thing of marriage as covenant is to remind them that you cannot do it alone. You may be right now betrothed to one another and you're excited about it, but I want to tell you that you can't do it alone. You will never be able to do it alone. You need somebody else. You need your heavenly father to stand in the middle of you and to carry you to himself. Right? The most crucial aspect of all Christian marriage was this, and I, this is right here in this text. There is a covenant mutuality that you're in it together, husband and wife and wife and husband, and there is also no room for fear. Look with me in verse 6, whether on your phones or in your printed versions. It says, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Very interesting phraseology that do not fear anything that is frightening. How can you not fear that it is frightening? I mean, you're going to be afraid of things that are frightening. But Peter says, no, 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 don't be afraid of things that are frightening because there is no room for fear because I am with you. I, your, your covenant Lord, I, your lover of your soul and body, I, the protector of yourself, 
I am here. No fear because God is involved in it, not just with you, but also with your husband and wife. And in this case, your pagan husband or sometimes Christian husband. But also there is no fear because the most foundational, foundational emotional and relational metric for a God-honoring and gospel-defined marriage was not fear but faith, not fear but love, love of God that is transfusing all our relational activities. And he also does two redefining exercises here. He redefines feminine identity as more than just what's on the external and what's adorning you in terms of jewels and makeup. You know, in the first service, I, I, I was trying to think of, because I didn't really write it down here on this manuscript, but I was trying to think of some uh, cosmetic brand. And the only one I could think of was Revlon. But then between the service, I thought of, okay, there's also Estee Lauder that I've seen in my wife's, you know, uh, cosmetic whatever bag or thing that she has. And then Estee Lauder and uh, Clinique, I guess. And so, but what Peter is saying is this, a woman's beauty is not just on the external. There's something internal. There's something that's inner beauty that needs to radiate, and not just about what kind of jewelry you got going on and what kind of makeup you got, you're, you're wearing. And that really is a redefining exercise of human identity. The other redefining he does is re- re- redefines the purpose of marriage. He says this very interestingly. He says marriage is more than mere procreation. It's not all about this cultural mandate, which is a very important one, be fruitful and multiply. That's very important as part of the Christian marriage or Jewish marriage, all human marriages. But more than that, Peter says, you know what, more than procreation, the ultimate purpose of marriage is communion with the living God. This is what it says. As heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, he's telling the husbands, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So he seems to be saying something like this. He seems to be saying that the ultimate purpose of a marriage, both husband and wife and wife and husband, is that you're going to commune with the living God. You're going to use marriage as, an important, as important as it is, not as an end unto itself, but as a means of mutual sanctification. And that leads me to my second point, marriage as sacrament. Marriage as sacrament. So what is a sacrament? And we're going to, after this sermon, you know, in, in just a few minutes, we're going to enter into a time of participating in the sacrament, sacrament of the Lord's Supper, right? Sacrament, as Augustine, this fourth century North African Christian bishop said, sacrament is, sacraments are something that um, point us to signs that point us to the reality. So sacramentum, the word Latin, that, that word means sign. So for example, if you stop sign, if you see a stop sign, that means you need to, that, that's signifying something that is designed to elicit a response, right? If it's a stop sign, that means you need to stop or exit that says in one mile, you need to get off this exit 34. They're not telling you two miles. They're not telling you point two miles is one mile. So these signs are pointing beyond themselves to a reality that is there. So don't settle with the sign, but go with the reality. So sacrament conveys the grace of God, or at least reminds you of your desperate need for grace. Before, so uh, to put it very simply, a marriage as a sacrament that is, is pointing to something beyond itself. 
marriage as, a, as, as, a, as covenant is important because it shows that you're not alone, that God is involved in it, and you make a solemn promise before one another and before the witnesses, but also before God. That reminds us that you're not in it alone. God is with you. But here in, is marriage as sacrament. That means that it's pointing us beyond marriage itself to something and someone beyond it. So it, it shows us the need of grace. So let me put it to you very, very simply. So I got married uh, in 1996. So I was 29 years old. And before I was married, I used to think that whoever got to marry me was a truly a lucky woman. I know you're laughing. You have every right to laugh. I mean, laugh more, please. I mean, because, you know, this is ridiculous. I used to think that I was a pretty decent chap, right? But then when I got married, so when I got married, I realized immediately I married up. And two, that marriage is a powerful mirror that really shows me the desperate need for grace. Because, you know, like you're living next to somebody and you're doing everything together, a lot of things together, and then you realize, man, I'm not as good as I thought I was. And my wife is sitting right there. You can ask her after the service whether that's true or not. But, you know, there's that. There is a real desperate need for that grace. That, you know, I used to think that I was a pretty decent guy. So what sacrament does is he, sacraments present Christ to us. Marriage as sacramental reality means that my marriage to, my marriage to uh, Mickey Kim has reminded me of the desperate need that I have of Jesus Christ because I realize that I cannot be all that I'm promising myself to be, and nor can she be, and I'll say more about that in just a few minutes, not just for us, but for all human couples in marriage. Sacraments present Christ to us. Not that marriage is one of the seven sacraments of the church. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, however, is that marriage as the very first divinely sanctioned and, and sanctified institution reminds us of God's intention and commitment as God continually reminds us that we are not alone in all of this. That marriage points us to Christ. Even in the most beautiful marriages, they point us to Christ. Even in the worst of marriages, they point us to Christ, our need for Christ. So before the fall, it says in Genesis chapter 2, it's not good for the man to be alone. So God does something. God brings uh, uh, this suitable uh, partner for the man. They were both naked and felt no shame. And this is very, very poignant text that in your, if you're married right now, it is only before your spouse that you feel no shame in being naked, right? I mean, like if I, you know, you know what I mean? Like if I just, if you see somebody walking on, on Broadway naked, you probably think that that person has gone out of his mind or her mind because nobody should be doing that, right? I mean, under most reasonable circumstances, right? So marriage is a sacramental sign pointing us to the eschatological wedding banquet where all of our desires for true marriages will be consummated and perfected. In other words, while marriages are truly fulfilling and in and of themselves, they nonetheless point to something beyond and other than themselves, namely the grace of God, who invites to see, to, to, to see that the triune God, our God alone, is the true consummator of all of our desires, for human intimacy and others. Otherwise, otherwise, what are we saying about persons who are not yet married, persons who have been married and are no more, whether by divorce or by death? What are we saying to them? You see, I think it is really important for us to really think about marriage as an important covenant, but also as sacramental because it points us beyond itself 
to something that God is. So put it very bluntly, too, that marriage has become an idol in our society in many ways. Marriage has become an idol in our society. People fight over marriage as to, you know, whether who can be married and what genders can marry, and those things are also happening. But so both on the right and on the left, we have made idolatry of, over, you know, marriage, the institution of marriage, as if this is something that is really the, the end-all and be-all of human identity and destiny. And I'm here to tell you it is not. Marriage is very, very important, very, very instrumental in bringing us to Christ. But for those of you who are not married or out of marriage or because you're separated and, and because of death and so on, you think you have a different outlook on, on marriage. And I'm here to tell you that on both right and the left, we, get, we miss the picture because marriage is sacramental. It is not the end of itself. It is pointing us to someone beyond the marriage, who is actually spoken of in the Bible as our true husband, our true bridegroom, as the New Testament makes it abundantly clear in, 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 in the writings of Paul that, you know, God, through Jesus Christ, is one who betrothes himself to us. So, you know, but think of marriage as sacrament. It is pointing us to something beyond itself. Let me illustrate it this way. So when I was a graduate student, um, I went to graduate school in England, and uh, back in, I don't know how, a long time ago now, uh, in, the, uh, in the late 1990s, and um, every Thanksgiving, so, you know, there was a, a uh, you know, England does not celebrate Thanksgiving, and so there was, every Thanksgiving, there was a, a uh, Thanksgiving party, put together dinner party, uh, sponsored by the U.S. Embassy, and so students can go, and they would actually have different parties in different locations. So where I went to school, we also had a party. And, and so, thank, you know, a free dinner, it would be turkey. And I don't know about you, but I love these cranberry uh, sauces that are straight out of can. I mean, there's something jelly and gooey about it that I just find just so wholesome, you know. So I love turkey and cranberry sauce and dressing. And best of all, that gravy, right? The thicker, the better, right? And, and every time we'll eat that stuff, I was here for four years. So I think I had about three Thanksgiving dinners. At, at the expense of the American government, basically. And every time I would eat this Thanksgiving dinner, while we're excited about the food and that wonderful cranberry sauce, but we knew, we all of us, expats, you know, knew that this was in our home. England, as good as was, as wonderful a country might have been for us and for my education for me and my wife, that wasn't it. We were actually, the sacramental reality of this Thanksgiving dinner in England was pointing us to the great, real Thanksgiving dinner back home. So marriage as sacrament, as great as marriages can be. We can never fulfill that. You see, here's, here's what I'm saying. If you're married and if you're and newly married, especially, if you're looking to, towards your spouse to fulfill all of your desires and all of your kind of, you know, longings, you're in for a huge disappointment. Huge disappointment. And if you think that I'm going to be able to provide all that for her or for him in my marriage, you're going to basically deluding yourself. Because only Christ can fulfill that. You're looking for it in the wrong person. See, marriage is supposed to point you to the need of the Savior, need of the Redeemer, need of your Creator who has come to die in your place and live among you. That leads me to my third and the final point. Married to Christ. Married to Christ, with a question mark. So, what do Augustine, a 4th century Christian in North Africa, Teresa of Avila, 16th century Spanish mystic, and 17th century Puritan named John Owen, and Mother Teresa, 20th century Albanian, who spent most of her life in Calcutta in India, have in common? Four different people, 
two men, two women, these four individuals, all beloved of God, they all unequivocally and unanimously taught that our ultimate marriage partner was none other than Christ. That our marriage partner was none other than Christ. And secondly, they saw that the goal of the, the ultimate goal of the human journey was, ready for this? Transformation. They said, okay, you are wherever we are. And the purpose of our worship is to remind, to be reminded of who God is and also to be reminded of whose we are. And in that reminder, in throughout the liturgy, what happens is that God is slowly, yet surely transforming us drawing us to himself as our Heavenly Father does, and to really transform us. So we're all transitioning and transforming according to the image of God, which is perfectly displayed in the life of the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ. Here's what I think is truly crazy about what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is truly crazy is that this God desires to transform you, desires to have a relationship with you in Jesus Christ. And we take that for granted all the time. I take that for granted all the time. Imagine if the governor of the state, uh, Governor Lee, wanted to spend some time with you. You would be honored and you'd be like, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. Or let's say you, you know, the current president, you know, uh, Joe Biden or last president, uh, Donald Trump wanted to spend time with him. You get to pick which one. And you, and, and I mean, imagine if you, and you like that president. It's like, hey, I want to spend time and that president wants to spend time with me. Exactly. Yes. That's going, to be, that's going to make us feel totally overwhelmed with joy and delight and, and disproportionate sense of, do I deserve this? Christ wants to have time with you. Christ wants to transform us in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper that we're about to participate as we do, as we will in just a few minutes. This is a powerful reminder. It's a sacramental reminder of the wedding banquet that is to come that the great banquet of the Lamb that is coming, and we catch a tiny, tiny glimpse of it. It's a small, small hors d'oeuvres that we're having because we are about to get the real entree soon. So this is what communion is all about. Communing with God means that it is an ecstatic communion. It's an ecstasy, right? It is that ecstatic communion of, and that language really means moving outside of yourself. What God does is God moves us outside of our comfort zones and says, you know what? I want you to go there. I want you to meet this person. I want you to spend time thinking about this because you move outside of yourself. You allow God to touch you, influence you, and move you. So transaction of Christ brings about transformation of the Christian. Transaction of Christ brings about transformation of the Christian. By transaction of Christ, I mean what he, was, what he has done on the cross and the empty tomb and the ascension of Christ. What he has fully paid, that transaction ensures the transformation of the Christian. I'm referring to the belief that all persons, whether single or married, divorced or widowed, find their true and ultimate marriage partner in Jesus and Jesus alone. John Flavel, a 17th century Puritan, wrote about the beauty of Christ this way. He says, Jesus is the most beautiful person ever in human history. Jesus is sweeter than the honeycomb, the sweetest of all honeycombs. And Jesus is sweeter than the voice of the lover in the book of Canticles or Song of Songs calling for the beloved to really come and dine. And, and if you have ever read the book of Canticles or Song of Songs, I encourage you to read it. Because if you have never read it, you'd be surprised. When I first became a young Christian in, in a junior year in college, I began to read the book. I was like, and I was totally blown away. It's like, 
this is really like, I think this is rated R. Can I be reading this in the, in the, in the church? Because it speaks very intoxicatingly about the death of human eros, that erotic language of what it means for two people to come together and desire one another. And throughout the, the human history, it said, you know what? That is about the human relationship of marriage, but also it points us to something beyond itself, that is mar- being married to Christ. Paul picks that theme up beautifully in Ephesians. says, you know what? Jesus is your bridegroom, and the church is his bride. As individual members, we see ourselves in that sort of marriage context. So, and, and the, the, Peter says, you know what? Um, you, they are co-heirs with you in terms of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So the key aspect of the devotional life of the early Christian community, it was not to be based on fear but love. It was based on the conviction that the gift of eternal life was something they could be assured of, even if they hadn't actually seen it, right? Someone went there and came back, namely Jesus. He went to death and back and told us all about it after his resurrection. It is like asking someone about some place that you're dying to go but haven't been. You know, let's say I'm going somewhere for a uh, like family trip, and I'm asking somebody, hey, have you been to this place? And they're telling you all about it, and there's a sense of trust and excitement, Right? Lastly, the ultimate tell us of prayer was communion. So he says, so that your prayer life may not be hindered. The ultimate goal of the Christian marriage was communion, right? So prayer, the ultimate purpose of prayer was communion. Ultimate purpose of marriage was communion. That means that in that marriage for Peter, he says, you know, I I want you to really think about your marriage as a way that you can commune with the living God so that you can think of your, your partner as someone that you can look to uh, for strength and, and showing honor to the woman and showing honor to one another. And in so doing, what you're going to do is complete the law of Christ because you will realize that you cannot do it alone. You will realize that you cannot do it at all. That means you're going to depend on someone other than yourself, namely God who is in this marriage and God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he says, God says, I have come in, G- in, in my beloved son. My body is here broken for you and blood shed for you. And in our marriage, whether you're in it or out of it or seeking to be in it yourself, let us be reminded of the beauty of marriage itself, but also, but also being reminded of the fact that the only way to sustain that beauty is by having inviting that triune God into your marriage or into your relationships so that you can see God in your in your life all the way through. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for this reminder that marriage is covenant, marriage is sacramental, and we are called to be married to you. And in so doing, we really give up this impossible burden of trying to be gods unto one another, that we cannot do that and be that. So may your Holy Spirit now remind us as we partake of this Uh, the elements of the, the bread and wine and juice, that you will indeed lift up our hearts to the heavenlies in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, may we be transformed as we seek to commune with you here and now and forevermore. In your name we prayed. Amen.